not Caesar. It's not Caesar. And you know, uh, many of you know, uh, it's pretty obvious as all over the news that this is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I think everybody knows where they were on 9-11. I remember being a sophomore in college and I was in the, the, the guy's dorm and I was just shaving. There was a long mirror and a, a ledge there and guys would just shave before they take a shower or whatever. And I was shaving and someone ran into the bathroom and said, you got to check out the news. There is one plane that f- flew through the, one of the towers and, uh, and they said that maybe, you know, that could have been an, some sort of accident or error. But then as the second one flew in, this was no error. This was an attack on the United States soil. And this was unprecedented. This has never happened before like that, other than maybe Pearl Harbor. But this was a big deal. And then they found out, of course, it crashed in the Pentagon. And then the one that, was, that crashed in the middle of a field in Pennsylvania was headed towards the Capitol or the White House. And I, as I was reflecting this story, we don't forget that. I mean, it just, it's etched in my mind. I could see it vividly even today where I was when I heard that news. And so many people flooded churches for the first six months. And by March 2002, most of those people left church and went back to somewhat normal. Of course, then TSA came in, and that's why we uh, have to go to the airport two hours early now. But lots of changes has happened. Obviously, we look at terrorism in a different way, realizing that it's in our own backyard. But I think what that story tells us more than anything is to prepare your heart because you never know when you're going to die. And as you look at John the Baptist this morning, as we're going to read the first eight verses, his sole goal was to prepare the way for the king to come, to prepare your hearts. It was more than clearing debris. It was clearing your hearts of the clutter so that you can see Jesus and who he really is in the scriptures, in Mark's gospel even specifically. And I think that's important because if you remember in Luke 13, Jesus was talking about the Tower of Siloam, remember? Do you remember what was asked those guys who died because the tower fell on them? It reminds me of the twin towers that fell. You know, people could ask, you know, why did that happen? I think everybody was asking, even at that time in September 2001, they're asking, why did this happen? And you could just hear Jesus's words 2,000 years later say, well, the same will happen to you if you too won't repent. And that sort of sets the stage for this message. Again, God's providence and just seeing the way that we're supposed to understand how, why Mark wrote this. This is a very interesting time uh, that they were in, in Rome. Uh, they were on the the cusp of being a uh, very persecuted group. It wasn't coming until late 60s when Nero, when the whole city of Rome burned and then they blamed the Christians and killed massive amounts of Christians. But it was already beginning to be very hostile there. It's a very hostile time. And Mark writes this gospel really to show who Jesus is so that they might be saved but not only that, 
But he tells them that they could be encouraged that this is the king. This is the king that everybody was awaiting, even the Romans, because their Caesar was king. And the Jews looked at it also in a certain way as well, realizing the Messiah is going to come. But when? So they both heard this in a very interesting, unique way as they heard Mark's gospel. So let's pick it up in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed, clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and honey. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I, am bapti- I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so let's pick it up in verse 1. It says here that the gospel, or euangelion in Greek, is the Septuagint's way of saying the same thing, basar, in the Hebrew, which is good news. Now, that had a, a rich meaning. Now, we look at that as saying good news. We know that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they also heard it in a different way. They, there was a few meanings. When people heard good news, it meant military victory. It meant political triumph. It actually meant physical rescue. So look at First uh, Samuel 39, 9. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. In Psalm 40, verse 9, it says, I have proclaimed glad tidings. It also can mean glad tidings, good news, glad tidings. It's the same meaning, military victory. So I proclaim glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Good news also refer to salvation of God's people through the Messiah King. Isaiah 40, verse 9, it says, Get up, get yourself up on the high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift, up, lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So this is how they heard it. Good news, military victory. Also, the Messiah King is coming. Isaiah 52, verse 7, How lovely are the, on the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. It's a big deal. It's preparing the way for this Messiah King to come. And Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12, we preach this back in December but it was very clear that the good news is the Messiah who is going to suffer for the people, who is going to forgive their sins, who is going to bring blessing on the nation, freedom, deliverance, right? Mark uses the word Christos, which is just the Greek version of the, of the Hebrew Messiah. And that's important because remember, we've got to get into the mind of the hearers, In the mind of the author, why did Mark use this terminology? What was he trying to communicate to the Romans and to the Jews who were living in Rome? What was he trying to say? Now look, every good Bible study, we got to look at what is the authorial intent. 
not what do you think about it, right? It's not sitting around the Bible study in college and just saying, well, you know, this is what the verse means to me. I don't care. What does it mean to God? What does it mean to the author? Because it has a very specific meaning. And if you could get deep into the mind of the author and into his intent, you'll understand the meaning of the passage. And when you understand the meaning of the passage, you can make that bridge to application to transform your life. Amen? Amen. All right. Awesome. We're all here today. This is fun. Okay. So how did they hear that? The Roman or the Jewish hearers heard good news to be the Messiah who will one day take the throne. So they understood that when Messiah Christos, they understood, oh, this must be the one who is to come. Now, how did the Romans take that? There was an inscription uh, in church history. You can find this archaeology. There was in 9 BC, there was an inscription of a Caesar Augustus's birth. Very interesting, who was the first emperor or was during the, what is called the golden age of Rome or Pax Romana, the, the uh, Roman peace. This king came and they prepared the way for this king, Caesar, to come to bring blessing on Rome. Amen? Do you understand that this is how they heard it? They understood when Mark wrote this, he said, look, this king is not Caesar, but they understood that Messiah King was one that would bring blessing and salvation on a nation. And so they both understood it. And later on, they, had, uh, they found coins with Caesar Augustus on it. And on the back of it, they, they, you know, they deified their Caesars when they died. In other words, they were gods. At least according to the Romans, they took that really from the Greek mindset And it said, son of divinity in Latin on the back of the coin. Or it actually said, uh, son of God. Isn't that interesting? There still seems to be in the world a competition between the earthly king and the son of God. Amen? Look at North Korea. We're not far from that in the States, are we? That's why we obsess about who is our king. During the elections, even this year, you can tell people wanted a king just as much as they wanted a king back in Samuel, right? Give me a king. And God said, fine, here's Saul. And he's still doing that today, isn't he? He's doing it in China, North Korea, Nicaragua, where there's dictators. There's still competition between our sovereign king, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, and the earthly king. It's a battle over power. Who's in charge? Who is ultimately sovereign over the world? And so Jews were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for freedom, right? Who are who the captives? They were captives to who, I should say, throughout Jewish history. You can name it out loud, right? Who? Egypt, right? Who else? Assyria, Babylon. Then, Greeks. They've got Persians, of course, for a short time. And then the Greeks, the Romans. And now we don't look at 
the Jews the same way. You suppose you could say the Middle East are always fighting over the land. But the Jews are still, even today, those who aren't saved, not the Messianic Jews, but they're still looking for the Messiah King to come and deliver them so that they would have peace in their land and have God as their king, earthly king. And the Romans also looked at it the same way. They looked at Caesar Augustus as the king who would bring peace. And they had peace for that small time period. Well, really, almost 400 years. But that was the first after they defeated the Greeks. You know, all this is interesting is that in Luke 2, you got this coming of the king. Caesar Augustus was was at the time of Jesus' birth. You have this pronouncement of the king coming, of Caesar coming, and, uh, you know, all the pomp and, and the celebration and the clearing the way for this king to come, and then they deify him. And then, meanwhile, Jesus is born in a manger, a humble king who is the true king to come and save you from your sin and to rule and reign over your heart and ultimately then the nations and the world. This definitely communicates one thing that Mark is trying to say over and over and over again. You need to prepare your heart for this king because he's already arrived and it's not Caesar. This king has rule and reign over your life. It says in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow before this king. Whether they like it or not, whether they want to or not, they don't do it on earth, they will for all of eternity. Even in hell, they'll be bowing the knee to Jesus, not to Satan. Satan will be destroyed and tormented just as much as every non-believer. That's why it is horrific. It's not a party contrary to what college students say. I remember so many times, oh, it's just, a, it's just a party, man. We're all, I mean, who cares? Let me go to hell. It'll just be one big party. Well, I'll just party all day. You will not be partying, trust me. It is not going to be a party. Hell is not a party. But Jesus is king and he deserves every knee and deserves everyone to say, you are king. And the wonderful thing is we get the privilege of saying that here on earth before it's too late. You understand what he's saying? You understand what Mark is trying to communicate in the midst of Rome. Rome. That's a pretty terrifying place to just all of a sudden stand up and say, this is the king. Of course, it killed many. What does Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God mean? Jesus is just Jesus. It's the Greek version of Yeshua in Hebrew, which just means Joshua or Yahweh is salvation. It was very clear to them. Matthew 1.21 says this, you shall name him Jesus for he will save people from their sins. Christ, it's also, uh, by the way, Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's a title. It's a title. It's Messiah, anointed one. Otherwise, you know, it's not so much saying Kuriali John, as Paul used to use, flip, you know, the words. It's Christ, Christ Jesus. It's not his last name first. It's the Messiah. This is his title. It's doctor or mister. It is Messiah Jesus. It is the anointed one. It's the one 
who is to come and is already here. He's the one that saves us from our sins, but also the king that brings deliverance and he is in total control. He is the sovereign one, amen, who we delight in giving our life to. It is a wonderful thing. It's Messiah, royal title used in the Old Testament to refer to appointed Israel, to the appointed Israel's king, 1 Samuel 2.10. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Isn't that a good word today? Against them, he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king. His king, who is that? Jesus, one day. You can look back at Old Testament literature the word of God and look back and see how Jesus has fulfilled so many passages. Typology, it's called, in technical term, too, as well as along with fulfilled prophecies. The Lord will judge the, uh, the, the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his, what? Anointed. Messiah. Second Samuel twenty two fifty one. He is the tower of deliverance. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows his loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. It's also talking about the end times deliverer and ruler. This is one of the neglected books, at least the latter half of Daniel, Daniel 9, 25 and 26. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. I will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. He's talking about the end times here. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And then Messiah also, the one who will come and bring salvation, peace, and judgment. And this is Isaiah 9. These are very familiar passages. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For a child will be born to us. This will be very significant as we get into the Christmas season already in a few months, December. But for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government of or of peace. Such a good word, isn't it? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. He is just and righteous. We don't have to make God be that. He is. And we wait for it. Sometimes we don't see his justice. Oh, but there will be in the end. From then on and furthermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now keep in mind, this is seven years prior to Jesus coming. They found these scrolls called the Dead Sea Scrolls that we can trust that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And many skeptical scholars will say, well, they found the Isaiah scrolls after Jesus. And so we just think, you know, Isaiah could just have kind of rewrote history. No, no, no. These were 700 years prior to Jesus's birth. And they found these scrolls 150 years prior to Jesus coming during the intertestamental period. It's pretty fascinating. And I don't think you can deny the fact that this is talking about Jesus the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he did. 
and he will not judge by what his eyes see. Later on, John says that he judges righteously, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. The word of God will strike people's hearts. Amen? And with this breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. This is Jesus. They would have understood that this is the Messiah. When they, under, when they saw John the Baptist's message, they understood that it was tied to the Old Testament, which we'll get to in a second where those came from. But they understood that. The Jews would understand that clearly this might be the one to come. This might have been Jesus the Messiah, the one that we're waiting for. And the Romans would have saw this in a certain way as well, saying, oh, this is the true king. And then, of course, son of God just means one in nature with God, the co-eternal, co-equal with God. He is God, not Caesar Augustus. There's always going to be a competing God, isn't there? Who's the competing gods in India? Who's the competing God in the Middle East? There's always a competing God. There's only two religions in this world. Two gods, supposed. The one true God and Satan. Every religion is satanic, including the cults, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Christian science, they're all satanic. They're all of Satan himself to deceive people from the one true God and salvation, right? In verse two, he quotes Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. Malachi 3, one says this, behold, I am going to send this is John the Baptist. This is the forerunner's prophecy. So if you want to title that part of the message, the forerunner's prophecy in which John the Baptist fulfilled 700 years later. Behold, I, oh, 400 years, I suppose, with Malachi. But behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts couple of things that I thought was interesting here was one, he's quoting Isaiah, but yet this is Malachi. Now, when you see that in the Old Testament, just for your own purpose, it is important to know that they'll always quote the more prominent. When there's two or three quotations, they'll always quote the more prominent or the major prophet. It's not that when you see four, four or five major, four major prophets in the Bible, it's not that they were more important. The 12 minor prophets were not less important. It was just based on volume. It was sheer volume. And so they're ordered based on the amount of material they wrote. And so Isaiah was the more dominant voice because he wrote more than Malachi in his four chapters, verses 66 in Isaiah. But he, so he quoted Isaiah. So it's not a misquote. A lot of times as you read through uh, the scriptures, maybe some of you guys who are more detail-oriented might look at that and say, wait a second, 
Maybe that discredits the entire Bible. Well, it doesn't, (laughs) thankfully. You can look a little bit more deeper into the history and understand that that's how they did things back then. Not only that, but I thought it was interesting that in, even in Malachi's message, which doesn't, is not the point of what John is trying to speak here, but that Jesus would one day come into God's temple and cleanse it, as you saw in John chapter 2. I mean, you can look at Old Testament. It's fascinating. It's an adventure, and it's fun to see all the passages that Jesus fulfilled. And it just strengthens your faith because Romans 10 says this, right? That we have faith by hearing the word concerning who? Jesus. So as you look at the Old Testament and the New, they can build your faith as you look at the person of Jesus. That's what's so powerful about the Bible. It all points to the Lord. The one who was always, the one who actually came in the flesh, and the one who's coming back as a lion one day, and the one we'll live with forever. Isaiah 40 verse 3 is the second part of it. Is a voice calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth the desert a highway for our God. And so what happened was kings would send officials to clear the debris, the way. They, they were not perfect, smooth roads as you see here in Oviedo. There's lots of smooth roads, you know. But they, they, they had dirt roads and there was lots of debris. And so they didn't want their king to trip over twigs and things like that. They wanted to honor them and, and clear the way, so to speak, so that the king would come and they wanted to honor him as the one, the sovereign one who would bring peace to our nation and peace to our city. And so that's what John was doing. He was that one that Isaiah talked about. John is here. And so they're thinking, well, if John is here and he fulfilled and he came in the spirit of Elijah, then this must be the king then. It's pointing to him. The whole point of this passage is prepare the way for the king, Jesus. The way to, so that you can have in your heart as you go through Mark 2 and 3 and 4 and all the way to 16, And of course, you can go to Matthew and Luke and John. You don't have to be restricted to Mark. But the point of this is that you're preparing the way because Jesus is going to say some pretty difficult things to all of us. We need to prepare today for the next year and a half to look at the book of Mark and what Jesus said. There's a lot of red print in my Bible as I've even flipped through. He says a lot. And we need to prepare the way and prepare our hearts so that we would receive Jesus as the king. So he's not only clearing road debris, but he's preparing people's hearts. He's crying out, it says. He's, please repent. This is, you don't, you may not have another chance. Please repent. It's like uh, George Ritfield. He says, come, come, come. He's constantly pleading, please prepare the way. Prepare your heart to receive Jesus as the king. And it says also that I thought was interesting that the, you know, the Jews would, would uh, leave an empty chair during Passover dinner. And that empty chair would be one day Elijah would come back. And just as Elijah, well, how did Elijah, Elijah didn't die. They thought, hey, you know, Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet. Now, Elijah already existed before this was written, Right? To the, uh, during the coming, the great and terrible day of the Lord, M- uh, Yahweh, 
the caps, L-O-R-D, is Yahweh, God. He will restore the, the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And so they thought, look, one day we're going to see Elijah. I hope it's in our day. We'll leave this empty chair open because Elijah is going to come back the same way. Just as he went up in that fiery chariot, he's going to come that way. And did he come that way? No. That wasn't the point. And we'll see here, see here in a moment, that wasn't the way John came. He wasn't interesting in, interested in some spectacle to prove Jesus. He had a lot of humility. But even in the Qumran Desert, the Dead Sea uh, community, when he was out in the wilderness, and we'll see here in a moment the, the significance of that, they understood even when he was out in the wilderness, there were people that were living in that community knowing, whoa, wait a second, this could be Elijah. And if this is Elijah, then oh my goodness, this, this could radically change everything and we'll have our deliverer from Rome. But of course, you know, throughout the Gospels, if you read it yourself, you realize that they were all looking for the one who would deliver them from Rome. And Jesus, yes, one day he'll deliver us from our political enemies and physical enemies, but he wants to deliver us from who? Satan. From sin. You know, in, in John 8, is, is Jesus is talking to the, the Pharisees. He's saying, your father is Satan. Your father is the devil. And, and they thought, no, we're, 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 we're Abraham's sons. We're good. And he's saying, no, you're not. Your hearts aren't good. You haven't prepared the way. You didn't listen to John, the greatest and last of the Old Testament prophets who would what? Herald the king to come. Amen? This has major implications on our walk with God and those who we walk with who are lost. Who are they waiting for? Deuteronomy 18 and 19 to 20, they were this desert community were waiting literally for, the, for the Moses' prophecy to come true. They were waiting for Moses and Aaron to come, for this one to come, this king to come. And they were greatly disappointed, but those who could understand spiritually, oh, he's come to save us from our sin. That's what John was preparing the way for, not some crazy spectacle of some fiery chariot, chariot coming down from heaven. That's why when Jesus was even tempted in the desert, which we'll see in moments, a few weeks, that him, he didn't need to jump off a cliff in order to prove himself as the son of God. He knew exactly who he was. Verse four and six, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And then verse six, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. John just means the Lord is gracious that my parents needed to be reminded that the Lord is gracious as they raised me. It's the Greek uh, is Johannes or Johan in Hebrew. Often people in this church even call me that, Johannes. Uh, or Johnny back at home. My parents are watching. 
But they have to distinguish John from other Johns because there are so many Johns. Of course, John the Apostle, and there is other Johns during that time. It's a very common name. And so they needed to distinguish him and called him the baptizer. Now, Baptist is, 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 is probably better baptizer because that's why he came to baptize. They were, he was known of baptizing people. And we'll get into why he baptized and what the significance of that baptism was. But it wasn't a Christian baptism. It wasn't the same exact baptism that Paul was talking about in Romans 6 or in Acts 2, as you saw, repent and be baptized. Similar, but we'll go into the little nuance and there's importance to that for all of us even today. But Luke one seventeen was very clear that the Baptist, the baptizer's birth was miraculous and the angel prophesied to his father Zechariah that John would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of who? Elijah. Elijah. And John kept denying that he was Elijah because he wasn't interested in drawing attention to himself. He didn't care about himself. The whole reason why he was put on the planet was to prepare the way for the king of kings. To enter into our heart. To one day, yes, in the millennium, to rule and reign and for all of eternity. He didn't want to draw attention to himself. Jesus is the focus of this whole book. In fact, he's the focus of all 66 books of the Bible. Now, we know not technically. You can't look at Esther and say, well, Jesus is there. You don't even see the word God there in Esther. But still inspired scripture shows Israel's history during what was beginning to be called the intertestamental period, the second temple period. But it all points to Jesus. And that's John's goal here is to prepare the way. John 1, 6 to 8, he actually says, I'm not the light, but I'm bearing witness to the light. He kept deflecting. Man, man loves to lift up man, don't they? We love to look at man and be like, wow. And he's thinking, I'm not that great. But he is. And I'm wanting the earth to know that he has come. And you have to give your life. And the whole reason why Mark starts with not the birth of Jesus like Matthew did and like Luke did and not like Matthew did with John the Baptist showing all the nuance and Luke showing this miraculous birth. What Mark was interested in, he's saying right out the gate, here's the king. 700 years ago, there was this prophecy of this crazy man who would eat locusts and eat wild honey, and wear a hairy vest in the desert. And he's here. He came. He got his head chopped off because he went against who? The king. And Jesus then was the king and is the king. And he went against the king. And what happened to him? He was crucified. You go against the earthly king, you're going to find yourself in a heap of trouble. Right? So what was the significance in the wilderness? It was interesting that in Exodus 23, there was the first Exodus, y'all are very aware, right? Is 
Israel is in bondage to, exit, uh, to, to Egypt and God miraculously caused them to walk through literally the Red Sea as the Gulf of Aqaba, just the, the, literally the waters split and they were able to walk through miraculously and find their vindication from Egypt after 400 years of bondage. They were miraculously freed. But God sent his messenger before the people. Who was that? Moses. And then in Isaiah 40, verse 3, there's another messenger to come. But in the context, in the original context of of Isaiah, there was a short-term prophecy. And that was, Isaiah was the prophet and he was delivering, he was declaring that there will be deliverance from what? Babylon. And it is to come. And now we find ourselves in the third exodus and they're back in the wilderness where it all began. And here's the third exodus. And what is that? Deliverance from our sin. And they go back to the wilderness. John is going back to the wilderness saying, look, Israel, who Jesus came to first, right? And then the Gentiles. And even Paul modeled that. And the apostles modeled that to the Jews first and then the Gentiles And that's significant and that's important as you see that this is the third exodus. And it was so clear to them that now we find ourselves in the middle of the wilderness. And, and, you know, there were people, of course, going in droves, as it says. They were coming from Jerusalem and all of Judea. They were coming all over from all over the region to come watch this crazy man say, quote, Isaiah. And some were in. And of course, you remember some of the Pharisees were not. Some of the religious people were not. And listen to this, what this Bible commentator said, which I thought was worth quoting. The summons to be baptized in the Jordan meant that Israel must come once more to the wilderness. As Israel long ago had been separated from Egypt by a pilgrimage through the waters of the Red Sea, the nation is exhorted again to experience separation. The people are called to a second exodus in preparation for a new covenant with God. And as the people heed John's call and go out to him in the desert, far more is involved in contrition and confession. They return to the place of judgment, the wilderness, where the status of Israel as God's beloved son must be reestablished in the exchange of pride of humility. The willingness to return to the wilderness signifies the acknowledgement of Israel's history as one of disobedience, rebellion, and the desire to begin once again. Isn't that good? They find themselves again in the desert, wondering, is there going to be a deliverer? Is there going to be a deliverer from Rome? Is there going to be a deliverer? Is this the one to come? And they were coming, and those who were cut to the heart, so to speak, realizing that they needed a savior. They needed, they, they looked at their sin. They realized their brokenness. They acknowledged their brokenness. Those are the ones that would receive salvation. Those who chose humility over pride would receive this baptism of new life. And a lot of times they thought, or some thought that this might be the Gentile conversion. And I want to get a, a, a a tad bit technical with you because I think it's worth it. But just if you're listening carefully, you understand the implications of this. These people thought that it was a Gentile conversion to Judaism. 
the Jews that went out there, this was, look, there were Jews that went out there and they needed salvation just as much as the Gentiles needed to convert to Judaism. This wasn't just some sort of, John the Baptist wasn't out there to try to get Gentiles to be a Jew. This was far more radical, far more radical. That has implications to us today and it would have been incredibly offensive to the average Jew. One commentator said this, the Qumran washings or ritual immersion baths, which they were doing, they, they had uh, daily washings. They would wash themselves clean as a, as a symbolic of, of being clean and being separated from Gentiles. Or they also could have been looked at Gentiles finding that they want to leave their pagan gods and join Judaism and join their religion. But it was regular and repeated, whereas John the Baptist was calling for a single initiatory baptism, indicating the beginning of a new commitment. This was a dawn of a new era. For this, many believe that the most likely Jewish precedent is the ritual cleansing by immersion of a Gentile on becoming a proselyte. But John's baptism was for Jews. And that is key. And to ask them to undergo the same initiatory ritual as was required to a Gentile convert was powerful statement in John's theology and of the people of God, one which is reminiscent of the remnant theology of the prophets. This was like, oh, this reminds me of the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. What is happening? This is, this is different. This, is, this sounds different. We're in a, some sort of dead religion of works. And it says here, the last part of the quote, to be born a Jew was not enough. It was only a, by repentance that your sins would be, uh, be forgiven and be truly counted among the people of God. In other words, being a descendant of Abraham wasn't going to cut it. You coming out of the womb, you are not a Christian. Just because you grow up in a Christian home doesn't make you a believer. It doesn't cut it. They say 85% of America is a Christian, yet maybe less than 10% have a biblical worldview. Try to match that, reconcile that. This is what John was saying. It's almost as if he came to America on college campuses and saying, repent, Get to know this Jesus and them saying, we already know him. And them going to bed with hundreds of women or parties, doing whatever you want, having all your own gods and having Jesus too. This was incredibly offensive. I want you to understand this in the context because it has amazing implications for us today that their hearts were so hardened. I already know that message. I know that. We are sons of Abraham. Well, listen to this, what John said in Matthew 3, 8 to 10, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. They will be Gentiles one day. And that will be incredibly offensive to you. The axe is already laid at the roots of the trees. 
Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It just, all that means is that you need to change your behavior. Your mind, will, and emotions was once bent towards evil. It desired sin. It actually loved sin. And now it doesn't. It hates sin. Something we often tell our kids is that you can deceive us, you can deceive everyone on the planet to the day you die, but you will never, ever deceive the Lord because he sees everything. And the same goes for you. This is not some sort of emotive. This isn't some wishy-washy feeling of, oh, I think I know God because I get a goosebump in worship. This isn't just because you like reading, you know, uh, books about how this is your best life now. It could be. It's a lot better than hell. But this is your best life if you've never repented. This is the only life that you'll experience if you've never repented. And that's John the Baptist's message, please, I'm asking you to declutter your heart so that you can see the king of kings. Prepare the way. Repent. And you might be asking, well, how do I repent without the Lord? You can't. That's how desperate we all are. You can't just all of a sudden change. It is causing you to say, he's saying, change your heart. You're like, I can't. Perfect. You are a perfect candidate for salvation. That's the point. Isaiah 1, 16, 18, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. This is God's command. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. You almost feel like, well, we need to reverse this passage. So we, got, we get regenerated and we get born again and all of our sins are clean. They're all washed away and then we'll do good works. Well, that's what Ephesians 2 says, right? And there's truth to that. But God is saying here, it's very clear that you cannot know the good news until you know how bad it is. You cannot know the good news. You cannot reach for it unless you realize you are in trouble. Your baby that just came out and is crying, he is a child of the devil. And that is the truth. Why? Because that is what Ephesians 2 says. We are all in trouble, even at the moment of conception. The fools that think they're doing women of choice a favor by killing their baby are absolute fools, knowing that God considers life at the moment of conception. They are human beings with a conscience. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, how you've turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. What is happening here? That is what repentance means. That means I was once this and now I'm this. If you don't have that story, you're in trouble. 
If you cannot clearly see there was a before and after, I would encourage you to find that out now before the towers of Siloam crush you. Acts eleven eighteen says, God has granted Gentiles also the repentance that what leads to life. What does that mean? That means that when you repent, you'll have life, not before. It's not wishful thinking. 2 Timothy 2, 25, God may grant them repentance. God grants you repentance. It is an act of sovereign grace on your life. God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. You'll have life. You'll have truth. You'll be free from sin. That is the fruit of repentance. Charles Simeon said this, to warn people of danger is the kindest act of love. Amen? That's what John the Baptist was doing. Oh, he's so mean. Say that when you're in heaven. I doubt anybody's going to jump John the Baptist. Kevin DeYoung said this. He's pastor. Genuine repentance is not a convenient escape hatch after a weekend of life or folly. Of folly. It means admitting specific wrong, recognizing your offensiveness to God, changing course, turning to Christ, and wishing with all your heart you had never made the mistake you now despise. It is not cheap sorrow, a feeling that you feel bad because you got caught. It's saying that if you never got caught, you'd still feel bad because it was an offense to God who sees everything. Charles Hodge in the 1800s said this, the sure test of the quality of any supposed change of heart will be found in its permanent effects. Whatever, therefore, may have been our inward experience, whatever joy or sorrow we may have felt, listen, unless we bring forth fruits, meat for repentance, our experience will profit us nothing. Repentance is incomplete unless it leads to confession and restitution in cases of injury, in ways you can try to make it right even, unless it causes us to forsake not merely outward sins, which others notice, but those which lie concealed in the heart, unless it makes us choose the service of God and live not for ourselves but for him, there is no duty which is either more obvious in itself or more frequently asserted in the word of God than that of repentance. That is John's message in point. You people of Abraham are coming to the desert thinking you're okay because everybody else thinks you're okay. But I'll tell you what, God doesn't think you're okay. He doesn't think you're okay. And therefore that should trouble you. And you want to come so that you would be baptized in a spiritual renewal. You'd have true revival in your heart and prepare for the one who will judge your heart. And it isn't me, but it is Jesus Christ. Amen? J.C. Ryle says this, sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. That's repentance. Matthew 3, 7 to 12, or 7 and 12, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, same context as Mark, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. 
his winnowing fork is in his hand. Who's he talking about? That's Jesus. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his weed into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This isn't talking about fire, fire, fire at some charismatic church where you fall down. This is talking about a threshing floor in which you will be burned up if you don't give your life to Jesus. Totally the opposite meaning. It is not some charismatic experience, some fire in your heart, although Jeremiah talks about a fire in your heart, a fire in your bones in which you must speak the word. That's not talking about a passion. It is talking about judgment. And John John the Baptist was a judgment preacher. He was the true prophet to warn people, please do not ignore this message this morning. Acknowledge your brokenness. Acknowledge your sin. Because Jesus came 2,000 years ago and he's coming back again. Amen? You know, I think it's interesting that Mark leaves out the John's miraculous birth and, but yet he includes this that one other gospel writer writes in, in Matthew about his rugged, humble life in the desert to give you again a picture of what a true prophet, a man of God, looks like. And I suspect that some people will come back with a hairy vest next week and properly apply God's word. And as I go to their pantry, I'll see lots of locusts, dried up, crunched, ready to be put in bread, and wild honey. Oviedo grocery markets will be, no, won't know what's coming. <laughs> no, the, this was to show again proof that this John the Baptist is Elijah, and he's here. 2 Kings 1.8 says they answered him. He was a hairy man with a leather, leather girdle. He was talking about Elijah around his loins. And he said, this is Elijah the Tishbite. And Ezekiel, or I'm sorry, Zechariah 13.4, the, the prophets would wear a hairy robe. This was obvious. Do you know God is not trying to keep salvation from anyone? He's saying to the Romans, look. This is obvious. This is the king to the Jews. Look, do not miss this. This is your last chance, he's saying. This is Elijah, that empty chair. He's here. This is it. You won't be able to stand before Jesus and say, I didn't know. Because Paul says you're without, what? Excuse. Luke 1, 15 to 17. He will be the great, he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor. It gives us another aspect of John and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord. Not all of them, but some It will be him who will be a forerunner before him 
who is Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It was obvious that he was talking about the last sentence in your Old Testament Bible of Malachi 4. Isn't that amazing? The last words of the Old Testament we pick up in the first words of the New Testament. This is Elijah, and he's come to prepare us for Jesus. And then he eats locusts. Like I said, uh, you, if you're interested, you could just remove the wings and the legs and then roast the body, dry it, and bake it in your bread and put butter on it for your toast in the morning. Or I suppose you could spread honey on it. Wild honey, which was found in the cleft of the rocks. I mean, you can look that, up that up and... It was uh, sweet and nutritious. It's very nutritious. I mean, there's a lot of protein and health benefits. Wondering why our local nature place uh, down the street is not host, you know, have they Actually, you know what? I found the other day, they, they do have big bags of dried locusts. You can buy that and just spread it in your anything. You can put it in lasagna. I saw somebody doing it in lasagna. I mean, you, could do it, you can't taste it, but it's, you know, it's extra protein. It's of the Lord. But I love this about John, that he wasn't interested in, I think with all that, as you look at his clothing, as you look at, it has implications to this was the one, this was Elijah. But, you know, it also has implications that he wasn't trying to identify himself with people. You know, so many supposed men and women of God who represent him in leadership of any form tend to lean towards the opinion of man rather than the opinion of God. And I think what you see here in John is just, he was not worldly. He was identifying himself as the prophet of God, not necessarily the representative of people. This isn't some sort of democracy that the man of God, the preacher, preaches God's word, which is the authority of God, and is more interested in what God says than what people say. Amen? We can trust him. Mark is showing us the true character of this man who is heralding the one to come. As we uh, look at the last few passages here, I want you to turn your attention to verse 7. And it says here, and he was preaching and saying, this is the forerunner's message and character. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. And I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The focus of John the Baptist has always been Jesus and it should be ours. Whether in leadership or we're in the workplace, or wherever we find ourselves, we're simply forerunners. We're simply people that point to him. In fact, John says in chapter, the apostle John in chapter three says this, he must increase, talking of Jesus, and I must decrease. That should all, be all of our motto. Right? When you're in life group, sitting in the circle and you're about to let everybody know your knowledge, 
Are you decreasing so that he might increase? Of course, the Lord might want to speak through you, but are you here to impress everybody with your knowledge and what you know and what you experienced? Because that wasn't the heart of John. That doesn't save anyone to look at you. But to get out of the way and to herald this message that Jesus is the one to save you. And I want to represent him and speak in such a way that people get him. That is his whole ministry message and character. In fact, he says, Jesus is mightier that I'm not even, I love this little, he tucks this in and he says, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. You know, in those days, you know this, but they had really dirty feet. I mean, they would step on horse's poop and, and they would send on animal poop. I mean, it just was not the clean sidewalk that we have in Oviedo. So they had to have, you know, you're not going to walk in my house with those shoes. No, no. You're going to take those off and I'm not going to do it as the host. So who do they have do this? Slaves. Slaves did this. In fact, the Talmud says this, all services which a slave does for his master, a pupil should do for his teacher with the exception of undoing his shoes. I'm just, sometimes I just can't put my head around this, that this is the greatest of the Old Testament prophet. And yet he said, I'm not even worthy to do the slave's job. That should humble us all this morning. The way we look at leadership. Uh, Even the way Rome looked at their leaders. Kidding me? This is ridiculous. As Caesar is walking down preparing the way as they had this massive procession and meanwhile Jesus is born in a stinking manger. John is miraculously birthed and goes out to the desert, not the city in a suit, but in the desert. And then finally when the king actually arrives, which we'll see later, he'll baptize Jesus because he has to. And he does the lowliest job, but yet he does this the greatest job of any prophet who ever lived, Isaiah would look at him and bow in the noblest way, just saying, wow, you get to have literally seen the one that I prophesied 700 years prior. And yet you say you don't even want to do the lowliest of job of that a slave would do? You won't even touch... you." You can't even touch his dirty, stinky sandal. Who is this then? Who is this? The readers of Mark would have said, then who is this guy? If you're great, then who is this guy? Oh, you'll find out in the next 15 chapters who this amazing God-man is. You see what I'm saying? Look, don't get excited about me. I just wash the outside. I clean the poop off. But Jesus is coming 
And he can baptize you in the Holy Spirit. I can just give you a bath and he can transform your life. Look, regeneration is a miracle. It is not some past conversion experience to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, contrary to the charismatic world. That is false. Do not be looking for another experience. If you are, you may not be saved. Because you don't need another experience other than the salvation and regeneration, the miracle of God in your life. You need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit once and for all. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says there's one baptism. It's not some other experience. And let me show you the miracle, the sheer miracle of what Jesus is talking about that all of us are desperate for and all of us need even today. Ezekiel 36, 24, and 27, this was evident. This was clear. This should have been clear as John was talking, as Mark was writing this gospel. It was clear that when Jesus is going to baptize in the Holy Spirit, this is exactly what they heard. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your what? Idols, not your dirt. But the deceptions in your heart, the idolatry in your heart, the ways that you hurt God every day in your mind, in the ways you hurt people, the things you say, the things you do, the rebellion in your heart. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, my spirit, God's spirit, that is his spirit he will put within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, my law, my ways, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. In John 3, 5 and 6, John answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you better pay attention. That's why he says it twice. Unless one is born of water, the, the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He must be born of water, which, of course, that's your first birth. And you have to be born of the Spirit. That's the second birth. And both of those births have nothing to do with you. It was just a simple analogy. He was just saying, look, uh, did you tell mom and dad, okay, I, it's time for me to be conceived? That's ridiculous. It's hyperbole. It's, then you have nothing to do with your salvation. But when you hear the word, when Peter was speaking on Pentecost, they heard this word, they said, you killed Jesus with your sin. You put him on that cross. And they're saying, what could I do? I'm guilty. You're right. You know what God was doing in that moment? He was beginning to work in your heart to cause you to be broken, to cause you to acknowledge your sin. And friends, that is a miracle. Because if that was easy and simple for all of us just to sign some document, then you're saved and go to get to go to heaven the whole world would probably be there but they're not are they because this is truly an act of god a sovereign act of god
Titus 3, 5, and 7, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly by grace, Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a total act of God. And you know what John the Baptist was saying? Is I, I have nothing to do with this. I'm simply a herald. And I'm waiting for him to come just as much as you are. And of course that baptism, I think it goes without saying, is just a symbol. It's an act of obedience to say, I'm identifying with him. I'm going to get into the water and as a symbol of washing my whole body clean, I'm I'm wanting God to wash my heart clean from all the idolatry and so that I would receive him and him alone for salvation. You could see John's character is one of humility. And I I love what J.C. Ryle says, humility sees more evil in one's own heart than in any other in the world. You know, it's not occupied. You, you, you don't just, the point is not this. You go and find all oh, their sinners in my life group. They're the ones struggling. They're the ones going through all this because they're being punished by God and they need to get right with God. That is not one of humility. But rather walking in the doors of life group or discipleship or whatever you do, even in your own household to wake up in the morning saying, like that tax collector beating his chest saying, God, I need you. I am a sinner. I don't know why you don't just strike me and kill me today. Not like the Pharisee that says, I don't want to be like that guy. John Flavel, he's a Puritan, says when the corn is nearly ripe, it blows the head and stoops lower than when it was green. It's profound. When the people of God are near ripe for heaven, they grow more humble and self-denying. They actually see their sin more the older you get in the Lord. They become more sensitive. You see, Paul had one foot in heaven when he called himself the chiefest of sinners and the least of saints. Isn't that profound? We actually, as we grow in the Lord, those who have been with us even for the last nine years or those who have been saints and part of the family of God for 20 years or 40 years or even longer in this church. They should be the ones like Paul saying, oh, I'm the chief of sinners. And you're thinking, well, wait, aren't they getting better? They are. That's the point. As we're growing deeper in the Lord and knowing more of his word and growing in the knowledge of him, we're realizing, why did you save me? I still have this remaining sin and I hate it. That's why you got to be careful with new believers, right? Because new believers come in, they still have a lot of their sin. And it's noticeable not to them, but to us. And that's why we must always be looking at the Lord, not each other. One writer says, the essence of the gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Or in other words, that's C.S. Lewis said that, but he was quoting him. 
True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. That is true rest when I don't even think about myself anymore. And that's hard, isn't it? It's easier said than done. It's like one of those things where it just says, don't think about cheese. I bet you everybody thought about cheese. Don't think about yourself. Too late. You know how you solve that problem? By looking at him. Looking at his word, looking at his holiness, looking at his majesty, looking like what Isaiah 6, you know, being undone in his presence. It was after Isaiah saw the beauty of the Lord, the holiness of God, that he said, I have a problem with my lips. He didn't say, I have a problem with my lips. Oh, show me God. No, he saw God first. He realized he was disintegrated on the floor, a mess, broken in pieces, and he acknowledged his brokenness and said, I'm not like that one. And that's why we need a big view of God here in this church. And that's why we preach the word. D.L. Moody says, there are many of us that are willing to do great things for the Lord. Can't help but think of John the Baptist. But few of us are willing to do little things. I would imagine that John the Baptist said, I'm willing to do little things. Because he is great. Charles Spurgeon says, do not desire to be the principal man in the church. This is for all of us. Be lowly. Be humble. The best man in the church is the man who is willing to be the doormat for, doormat for all to wipe their boots on. The brother who does not mind what happens to him at all, so as long as God is glorified. Amen? All right. I don't know about you, but I'm personally humbled. Not humble. Some of you are like, wow, look at this guy. I said humbled, by the way. Humbled, E-D, by the Lord and his word. You know, after you read that, you don't mind being a doormat, do you? As long as you can be in his presence. As long as you can sit in that chair and say, wow, I don't know why he saved me. I don't understand that. Why me, Lord? Why do I know that John the Baptist came 2,000 years ago in the spirit and power of Elijah, which was 700 years prior? That I understand that, that God opened my heart up to that amazing truth that John did come. God fulfilled that promise that day. And not only that, but the king did come, and he's coming again. And the fact that you know that and you love that is a miracle. And I just say this, that just prepare your heart this morning to receive Jesus, the true Jesus who we're about to find in the next 16 chapters of Mark. As we go through the scriptures, ask God to get rid of the familiarity. You know, some of it's good, right? I mean, we, the Holy Spirit brings to memory the word of God. That's wonderful. But the familiarity breeds contempt. And I would say, just even now as a prayer in your heart, God, would you 
clear the debris, the pride, the obstacles in my heart. I want to see you. The only way you can overcome that habitual sin in your life is to look at Jesus, to be consumed with the word. I heard the other day that, you know, some pastors who are, you know, have pastored all their life, there's somewhere up to 10,000 hours of research and study in the word of God. What a privilege. That's the only way you can overcome sin is to be consumed with God in his word. To, to, to literally, could you imagine, to, to go, this is possible, by the way, church, to go through life, to go through on the college campus in the middle of a summer day and to walk through campus with a clean conscience. And to say like Paul in First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1.12, to have a clean conscience. To say, you know what? My greatest accountability anywhere in the world is the Lord himself. I'm consumed with him and his thoughts and the word. And I'm so, I, I just, I'm, uh, uh, scriptures are darting across my mind as I'm thinking about him. And you're not even aware of your own sin anymore. You're not aware of yourself and your greatness. You're not even aware of your lowliness. You're just aware of him. That's how you overcome. And that's what Mark is saying this morning is be consumed with him. Prepare your heart for this series, for this book that you're about to read. It's going to change your life. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing word. We know we can read the English, but we know that we need your heart in the scriptures. We want to see your heart behind it. We want to see your wisdom We want to see the truth. We want to see the meaning. And we need your help, the help of the Holy Spirit. 